Welcome to Face the Jury, the podcast dedicated to confronting the issues of medical malpractice in America, what it is, how to spot it, and how to protect you and your family from medical negligence. I'm your host, Lloyd Bell, a medical malpractice trial lawyer representing people who've been harmed by medical negligence. For more information, visit us at belllawfirm.com. Welcome to Face the Jury. This is Lloyd Bell, your host. And today I'm gonna be talking about how to structure an effective opening statement. I've been speaking on this topic at different trial lawyer seminars around the country, and I've dubbed it the so-called Netflix opening. Uh, And what I'm talking about, about the Netflix opening, is to use the structure that Netflix uses to such effect when they tell their stories through their documentaries and, and their entertainment. When you start with a point in time that illustrates the essence of the story to come. This is not original. Um, Shakespeare understood this when he did Romeo and Juliet. In the very beginning of that play, he starts off and tells you that this is a story of star-crossed lovers, and he tells you that somebody's going to die. In fact, he tells you who's going to die. So you know the entire story as you start off in that moment of time, and yet you're still drawn in and stick around to hear and to see the story unfold. Netflix adopts that same structure to great effect. Um, If you're like me, you have been hooked on the Murdaugh murders and the story of the disgraced South Carolina attorney, Alec Murdaugh, who has been convicted now of murdering his his wife and his son, serving a life sentence. Netflix did a series on this, and I watched it. I binge watched it. It's not very long, maybe four episodes, but it's just fascinating. And if anybody's seen that, you'll recall that opening scene where there's drone footage that's following a boat as it makes its way down the river in the low country of South Carolina. And you hear the music and the narration in the background describing that evening, describing the events. You see, you see moments in time as that boat is speeding through the water and you know something horrible is gonna happen. And then something does happen. Paul crashes the boat into the bridge support and a young woman is tragically killed in that incident. They pull you in and from that moment, it's very hard to, to turn the, the, the show off because you're, you're, you're hooked. Well, that structure is very common in Netflix. They do it in Breaking Bad, uh, Stranger Things, all those shows that we watched during the pandemic. And the idea is to capture at the very beginning when your audience is alert, uh, they're paying attention, they're uh, engaged, and to capture them in that moment and to grip them so that they stick around for the rest of the story. In trial practice, uh, a lot of what we do is to unlearn the lessons we were taught in law school. Um, if, if For the lawyers listening to this episode, you'll remember in law school, we were taught how to do an opening statement. And you typically stand up and you introduce yourself and you thank the jury. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being here. Of course, everybody's there under a subpoena and the threat of imprisonment if they don't show up. So it seems kind of hollow, but we still are taught to do that. We're also taught to explain to them what an opening statement is and how the system works. And, you know, 15, 20 minutes in, the eyes glaze over and you haven't even gotten to the, the, the reason the jury's there and the essence of the story. Well, the Netflix opening 
pushes all that aside, and I suggest a, a different structure modeled after how Netflix does it, which is to start your opening statement with a scene from a point in time that illustrates the conflict between the physician or the nurse, whoever the defendant is, and the plaintiff. Um, and the scene needs to be short, engaging, and pull you in. So I do a lot of medical malpractice cases, as you may know if you've listened to this podcast. And these cases are very challenging in a lot of ways. And, and one of them is that you're dealing with complicated medicine a lot of times. You're dealing with very sophisticated uh, expert witnesses, um, a lot of complexity that can be intimidating for a jury. Well, the benefit of a Netflix opening is, is really twofold. Number one, when you stand up in front of the jury for the first time, and you immediately start telling a compelling story of what happened, then the jury is drawn in. We all are drawn into to a story well told. So it's important to pull them in. But number two is that it's a familiar structure. So, you know, the jury, they may not be thinking to themselves, wow, this is just like, you know, Stranger Things or, you know, the, the, the opening scene from the, the Murdoch murders. But the, the structure will be familiar to them um, at some level. And in, it'll create engagement. Um, in the opening statement, you have prime real estate to tell your story, where the jury wants to hear the story. It's unfiltered. There are very rarely any objections to it. But you have that, that tremendous opportunity to tell the story in a way that, that engages and connects with the juror. So the general structure that I advocate for in medical malpractice is to Start off with a 10,000-foot mini-story that encompasses the entire trial. Um, again, think of Romeo and Juliet in the first two parts of the, of, the, of the play. The entire story is captured. You want to do that in a medical malpractice case as well. And, and tell the story. You do it in present tense. You, you engage with the juror. You make good eye contact. Uh, you move your body uh, intentionally. What do I mean by that? Um, I mean, a couple of things. Number one, get away from a podium, uh, throw away your notes, don't use notes, uh, but talk to the jury like real people. And when you transition from one point to another, that's a place to move your body so that the jury is subtly keying in that you're making a transition um, and that there's a new topic. Um, so you, you move intentionally, but you but in terms of the structure, you start off with a 10,000-foot view, and this is the way I do it, and I, and, I, and I believe this is an effective way to do it. So this, the jury very quickly, within two to three minutes, knows what the story is about. And then once you tell the 10,000-foot view, then you transition and say, well, um, so what, what's the medicine that you're going to need to understand in this case to, to do your job and to return a verdict that's a, a fair and just verdict supported by the evidence? What medicine do you need to know? And then phase two is where I'll transition and start talking about the two or three key medical concepts. And this is where I put on my teacher hat and teach the jury, you know, whatever the, the key medical concepts are. If it's a stroke case, for example, I'll spend some time explaining very briefly, very simple terms, what a stroke is. What does it look like? How do you treat a stroke? If it's a cardiac or heart mismanagement case, I'll do the same thing. But they keep it very simple. Anytime that there's a complicated medical word um, that's not going to be familiar, 
uh, arrhythmia, for example, for irregular heartbeat, anything of that nature. I'll, I'll use the word because they'll need to know what it means, but immediately translate it into everyday language. You know, the patient showed up and she exhibited tachycardia. Well, that's just a fancy word that means her heart's beating too quickly, for example. So phase two is the medicine piece, and I, and I, and I teach the medicine. And then I'll transition after I do that into the more involved story of the case. So if I've done my job well and presented the facts and the story well, uh, the jury now understands in broad strokes what happened, but, but they should have some curiosity. I should have aroused their curiosity to, you know, well, how could this happen? I mean, what, tell me, you, okay, I hear you, lawyer, but, you know, show me why you're right. You know, the, the, teach me what you're saying. So then phase three is where I go into the more detailed story of the case. And this is the part of the structure where I will uh, use medical records. I'll, I'll make a point. I'll say you know, that she came in on this date. I'll show the medical record with the highlights of the specific parts. I'm always trying to use multimedia. Um, I like to use the program Keynote, which is Apple's equivalent of PowerPoint. But I'm narrating the story Standing in front of a widescreen TV, I uh, find that 55 inch is, is the perfect size because it's not too big and you can move it around and the jury can see it very easily. Uh, but I'll narrate the story of the case, typically in chronological fashion, not always, but typically. And then um, what I'm telling the jury, I will support with visuals where I'm showing uh, the medical record or I'm showing a text message from a doctor, for example, whatever it is and go through the story of the case in more detail with supporting documents and other evidence that I'm previewing for the jury. Sometimes I use video clips. Uh, now that gets to be a little more controversial. Um, sometimes the defense objects. Uh, sometimes the, it's really the judge's discretion, but it can be very effective to use video clips for two or three witnesses, you know, no more than 15, 20 seconds apiece, just so the jury starts getting familiar with the actors, the players, the people they're going to meet in the trial. And once I go through that story piece, I'll transition and say, you know, well, why did we bring this lawsuit? Why are we here? Um, and then that's where I'll bring the focus of blame and point the finger clearly. And by this time, uh, based on the way I've structured the case, the jury will sort of have an idea or, or have a good idea of what the doctor, what the institution did wrong. Um, but I'll lay it out explicitly and I'll put that up on a board so the jury, I'll encourage them as I go along uh, to, to write notes um, of the points that I think are going to be important to them in jury deliberations. So I'll sort of encourage that as I go along. Um, and once I explain why we're here, you know, what this, what this doctor, what this nurse, what this hospital, what they did wrong, I'll then transition into what your job's going to be. Um, it's very powerful to explain to the jury that they, they're they here to do a job. Um, sure, they're subpoenaed. Uh, sure, there are certainly higher perspectives on justice and, and fulfilling their role as citizens. But at the end of the day, they're there to do a job that, need, that only they can do. And their job is to decide the case. So I make that point to them because it, it demystifies what they're doing um, we have a very wonderful system of, uh, of relying on juries to resolve civil disputes among citizens. 
but it, it can be a little intimidating for folks who aren't familiar with it. And it almost seems like it's designed to be intimidating. You'll see jurors come in to go through jury selection and they're, you know, sometimes the, the sheriff's deputies talk to them aggressively, like they're a bunch of inmates almost. Not always, we, you know, but, but sometimes that happens. Um, because the sheriff's deputies are under pressure to get the job done, to get their job done, which is to get people to move from point A to point B and to show up and all those things. It's a lot of moving parts. And uh, I, I see my role when I first encounter the jurors during jury selection uh, is to sort of try to lower that sense of, 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 um, of intimidation, just get them to relax. Um, I'll smile at the jurors. I'll say good morning to them. Um, I've gotten objections for that before uh, when they come in during a trial and I'll look over to the jury box and I'll say good morning um, and smile at them and actually had a defense lawyer jump up and object in front of the jury and said, Mr. Bell saying good morning to the jury. And the judge didn't think much of that objection. But um, but anyway, but there's a whole there are all these sort of human dynamics that are that are going on in a jury trial. And after I explained to the jury what the defense did wrong that's when I transition and start talking about what their job is. And their job is to decide this dispute. And that's going to involve usually resolving the dispute over the facts, you know, the factual disputes. You know, the, the patient says the doctor did something wrong. The doctor says I did everything just right. So there's always, almost always a, a, a significant dispute on that point. Sometimes the doctor will say, well, yeah, I didn't do the right thing. I was negligent, but it didn't matter. You know, it didn't, my negligence didn't cause any harm. This per, this person was going to experience the, the harm they were going to experience and nothing I did made any difference. That's a, a so-called causation defense. Um, and then sometimes the defense will argue um, that the patient is not hurt or not hurt as badly um, as, as is being presented. So there's always some level of dispute in these cases. So the, the sort of the final leg of opening statement is to talk about and, uh, and preview who the plaintiff is, who the, the, the injured patient is, and how this has affected them. Now, you know, there's always this urge that lawyers have, which is to over-explain and to go on too long. Um, I watched the uh, closing arguments, the actual closing arguments of the Murdoch trial, and the prosecutor went on, I think his, his closing argument was over th maybe three hours, three and a half hours, and people were live tweeting, that, oh, this is too long, it's too long. Um, and we, we do that as lawyers. We, we have a tendency to do that. Um, I've been told I do that in this podcast sometimes, that I tend to go on too long. <laughs> That's why I have good editors to, to keep me in line. But, um, but you don't want to go on too long in the opening statement. Uh, you want to preview and just give a flavor to the jury of who the patient is um, and, and how this has affected them, what their so-called, what their damages are. And I like to incorporate or reference some of the jury instructions uh, that, the, that the jury will be told later in the trial by the judge. I like to go ahead and preview those a little bit with the, with the jury so that the language starts to become familiar. So for example, in Georgia, we have a jury charge that tells the jury how they are to decide the issue of pain and suffering. We call it the food lion charge because it's based on a case that involved food lion, but it gives certain elements that the jury is to consider when deciding 
um, the case on pain and suffering and that the jury is told that they uh, should consider, you know, things such as anxiety, shock, worry, uh, fear of the extent of injury, um, actual pain and suffering. There, there are 15 different items the juries do consider. So I'll reference some of those, if not all, but at least some during my opening statement so that when the jury hears it again in the trial through witnesses and then finally through the judge at the end of trial, um, this language will be familiar to them. Because uh, one of the big challenges on these cases is so many jurors show up, all different backgrounds, of course. I mean, that's the beauty of our system is that you don't have to be a landowner as you used to be to sit on a jury or uh, or have some exalted position. It, 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 it sweeps in everybody from you know, folks with, uh, you know, very little education, maybe uh, working folks to presidents and CEOs. It's a it's a true cross section of our community. But no matter who's on the jury, unless they're a a medical person or have a medical background, uh, which is generally not a an appropriate juror to sit in a medical malpractice case, um, everybody sort of tends to believe that that doctors Medical professionals make up kind of an exalted place in our society. We respect the medical community. Um, I have deep respect for the medical community. My father was a doctor. Um, I've, I've known many uh, wonderful, caring, committed physicians that I've met through this, through my work in, in, in medical malpractice, people who really care deeply about their patients. But there's always the bad apples, uh, the, the, the few bad apples that spoil the bunch. And those are the cases that we handle. But people have this natural respect and deference to the medical community and to medical professionals. So there's a there's a there's a bias I think that folks have when they show up and they think, well, you know, who am I to judge a doctor? Uh, first of all, I may not have that much education. I may not have gone to college or any graduate degree. I may not have a graduate degree. So so who am I to judge? Um, you know, somebody that has spent so many years in school and obviously has. Uh, a lot of intelligence and aptitude to make it that far and to be licensed in the state. Um, and that's a fair question. And I address it head on with the jurors during opening statement. Now, I'll, I'll explain to them, you know, the story of the case in very human terms, that this is, it's not a case about some complicated medical condition or, or some disease process. It's a case about somebody not showing up when they're called to help. When somebody's on call and, a, and, and they are contacted at home when they're asleep and the person doesn't want to come in to see the patient and they find an excuse not to come in. Jurors get that. I mean, that's a very human feeling if somebody, you know, kind of shirking their responsibility and not doing what they should. I try and weave in common, uh, accessible experiences that will connect whether the person on the jury, you know, works as a as a laborer or, uh, or works as a uh, banker or whatever it may be. And then at the end of the opening statement, I will typically tell the jury what I'm asking them to do. I will ask them for a specific amount of money and tell them that I believe the case is worth whatever the, I believe it's worth. And I'll let the jury hear that number early uh, be, so that they can consider it as they consider the evidence. Um, there's a lot of Controversy, different schools of thought on on whether that's a good idea, and um, I don't presume to 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 tell anybody 
definitively what works and what doesn't. But for, for me and from my experience, I think the most important thing is to be upfront and honest with the jury and to maintain your credibility. And I think part of maintaining credibility is not to play the hide the ball game with them. Um, if you're going to ask the jury for $25, $50 million, $100 million, if, this, if the case uh, merits it, then they, the jury should know that. And uh, they may you know, be shocked by the number, but what you want them to do is to hear the number early and then when, they, when the evidence comes in and they understand that this young person, for example, um, is going to be catastrophically injured for the rest of their life and require 24-7 skilled nursing care, rehabilitation care, all kinds of things, then the number starts to be more acceptable. So there are a lot of uh, uh, varying goals and agendas in an opening statement, but it all starts with a solid structure. And I've uh, talked to you about structure today. Um, and uh, it, just for ease, I call it the Netflix opening. But well, what I'm really talking about is compelling storytelling that starts with a gripping moment, a, a moment in time that you uh, would, would tell your friends and family over dinner or you know, on the way um, out the door. And you say, oh, let me tell you about this case. And it pulls them in. And then the rest of the structure supports that opening, Netflix opening. And then you end your opening statement explaining what you're going to be asking for. And then you say thank you and you sit down. And uh, I've been using that general approach now for a number of years. Uh, and uh, a lot of trial and error over the years. Um, I think I've tried now close to 100 civil jury trials and I would advocate to the folks out there doing medical malpractice or really any other civil trial to consider this approach. Um, a number of my trials are on Courtroom View Network. If, uh, if you're interested in seeing this in action, um, I would recommend going to CVN. It's a subscription service, but uh, it's a very reasonable price for the ability to watch real jury trials and um, and see testimony of witnesses and openings and closings. But if you, if you do subscribe, then I would recommend that you, you check out the, uh, the Chris Nelson trial for an example of this. Um, the recent trial we tried, the Jonathan Buckaloo case, um, re resulted in a, a record verdict here in Georgia. Uh, this structure works, and I believe in it. And uh, I hope for those lawyers out there listening that you'll at least consider it and maybe try it. And uh, my, my, my hope is that you uh, find that it is useful in helping you achieve the best possible outcome for your deserving clients. So thank you for joining me today as we've talked about opening statements and the structure that I, that I favor in trials. And I'd ask that you please join me for our next episode. Uh, I'm going to have as my guest, Stefan and Janet Lane, two wonderful clients uh, that we uh, represented and successfully resolved their case um, several months ago. They have a wonderful story to tell, um, at some points shocking, uh, some points terrifying, and uh, they are lovely people, and I, and I hope you'll come back and join me and meet them next time on Face the Jury.